I'm Sharon Batters, and I'm so glad you've joined us for this Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. After the death of our 16-year-old son, Mark, in 1993, there were people ahead of us in their own grief journey who were willing to come back and into their pain in order to help us walk this really, really painful place. And as we began to experience the comfort of the Lord, it, it took a long time. But we realized that we wanted to give back to those who had helped us kind of pay it forward by coming alongside of people who are broken and hurting, not necessarily because of the loss of a child, but because of any crisis in life that brings grief and sorrow. And so our Help and Hope audio library, everything we produce is free. But in this audio library, we have stories from people who have lived with some of the most difficult life crises that we can imagine. We try to go where it's hard for people to talk, it's hard to share it, and it's hard for people to know how to come alongside of that hurting person. And so some of our resources are obviously on the loss of a child, terminal illness, uh, cancer, widowhood, uh, a widower, a loss of a, a sibling, loss of a brother, sexual abuse, adultery, and many more. And today I am so excited to introduce to you, if you have never met them, Miho Khan and David Wiedis. And they are married. And Miho is an artist, uh, very creative. I've seen some of her work and it's absolutely beautiful. And her husband, David, plays the piano. And David is the founder of Serving Leaders Ministry as well as the executive director. So they're bringing a lot to the table today. They have put his story into a production called Clean Sheets, and they use all kinds of art to tell her story from the time she was a child until the, till where she is today. So both of you, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Miho, you have produced Clean Sheets, a one-woman show, and I know that you do it together, you work together, but tell us about why you produced Clean Sheets. Yeah, it was for my children. I wanted to write my story for my children. And they were a little bit too young at the time to really tell them all the details at the mm -hmm. time. Yeah, and it wasn't important. It was just, it's, it's the, the, the Jewish tradition of, you know, scripture says, write your story and make it plain. And I was responding to that and wanting to make clear what the story was. And so every time we did it, someone else would invite us to their church or their venue. And so we've gotten to do it in many, many different places, many different venues, for example, jails, high schools, colleges, bars, as, bars, as well as some mega churches as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love you saying that it's for your children and from generation to generation. And when I was working on my book, Treasures in Darkness, A Grieving Mother Shares Her Heart, I, there were many times I wanted to stop because it was just too hard. And Chuck would say, write it for your children and your grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Don't think about anybody else, just write it for them. And I think we don't value that enough. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, uh, that that was one of your driving forces. So for those who don't know you, they're probably thinking, well, what in the world is your story? So why don't you start at the beginning in Clean Sheets? You tell your story without shame, and, but you're, you're honest about wrong decisions, bad decisions that you made, and the consequences of those decisions. The place I decided to start the story is when I was 13 years old, 
I tried pot for the first time. I was determined to party. I was, I was a wild child. I really liked it. And I decided right there, I was going to try it all. And that was easy. It was the 70s and everything was available. Speed, cocaine, LSD, it was all available. And I loved it. And so I went on that trajectory. And am I going to tell it just like in clean sheets? I don't, I don't think you need to do that, but just just go, keep going. Okay. <clears throat> You weren't, you weren't a Christian. You were raised in a, by a, a Jewish father and a Japanese mother, right? Right. And so you didn't have any real religious background other than that you went to a, what, you know, a, Unitarian, you, church. Unitarian church for a while. Well, uh, yeah, for, for <clears throat> Easter and Christmas. Oh, Easter and Christmas. Okay. And so, so you basically, you know, didn't have much religion in your home mm -hmm. and you were pretty wild, right? You, you wanted, you were a thrill seeker. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you started selling drugs and doing drugs. That's right. Okay. Selling drugs to do drugs <clears throat> and really got in trouble. I mean, I, I, it was very fast. I, I just threw myself into it and was very quickly in trouble and started just hitchhiking all over the place. And now 14, I think was the first time I, I hitchhiked to Florida and uh, my poor parents, you know, people always wonder like, what were they doing? Well, they were, they were fed up for one thing because I had given them a lot of trouble. But they were also, you know, terrified for me. And I think one of their coping mechanisms was to just kind of close down. That it was a lot for them to handle. So you went all over the country. I went all over the country. I was put into a <coughs> detention home and they didn't retrieve me. They thought maybe this will scare her. Maybe this will be, a, um, you know, the shakeup she needs. And nothing was going to deter me. I just got out and went right back to it. And... I started to shoot speed. I, I, I tried heroin, didn't really like that, but uh, I really liked the needle. And I started to shoot speed all the time. And I, I would even go so far as to say I got addicted to the needle, which I kind of liken to cutting these days. There was something about that. But anyway, I was aware enough to know I'm, I'm going to kill myself. This is, I'm not okay. And something inside of me, I guess my survival instincts thought, I got to get out of here. And so I... And when you say kill yourself, you don't mean suicide. You mean you're going to be reckless. You're going to do something stupid and reckless that will kill you. Yeah, I was doing drugs <clears throat> to the point where I would look in the mirror and see that I was kind of wasting away. There was, I could see myself, there, there was something terribly wrong. And... A piece that I don't often talk about, but is true, is that I was, I was searching. There was an emptiness in my family that was pretty profound. There was a superficiality that rattled me. Everybody thought, oh, don't you want to be just like your sister, who was beautiful and popular and um, just wonderful, really exalted in high school and I would just look at her and think no she's the words I would say back then was she's as empty as a tomb there was just no there was nothing there and I knew there was something else there was a depth in life that I I wanted to taste it I was searching for that 
through drugs. I had the sense that street people, they had the answer. They were deep. They, you know, and, you know, now I laugh at that. People are just people. But I just thought that that's where some of the answers were in drugs and in the grit of life and all of that. So I went after that. And um, we'll speed forward a little bit. Because, yeah, as I said, I went to a detention home and I quit high school and hitchhiked out of town. And I actually went to my sister at that time. I said, tell mommy and daddy not to come after me. I, I need to go. I'm going, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop doing drugs. I'm going to, I'm going to be okay. But I have to get out of here. Too many people know me. Too many people know I sell drugs, I do drugs, I, I, I can't change in this environment. So that is the answer to why they didn't come after me. Um, so then you went out and you hitchhiked across the country. Hitchhiked tell, across the country. Tell what happened when you got to California. I got out to California and was at the Mojave Desert. And people would say, make sure you get a ride through the desert because tr- a lot of truckers would pick me up. They were great, they were bored. They needed you know, someone to talk at them. <laughs> So I got across the country pretty quickly, but when I got to the Mojave Desert, they would say, you make sure you get a ride through the desert because it's hot and it's dangerous. You don't want to get dropped off in the middle of the desert. Go through. So I asked this guy who stopped, you know, you're going all the way through. I'm going to LA and away we went. A very quiet man who at the end of the six hour ride or whatever it was said he lived with his mother and they had a bungalow. And if I needed a place to stay, I could stay in the bungalow and rest up for a few days, which was perfect. And, you know, I went and checked it out and it was clean and it was, I had a washer and dryer and a bed with clean sheets. And when you live on the road, there's one thing that's just like nothing else. And that's a bed with clean sheets, a soft, clean place to sleep. I went into the bathroom and next to the toilet, there was a stack of magazines that I picked up as I was sitting there. And it was, to this day, I don't know what I was looking at. Was, I don't know what it was. It was a collection of photographs of children. And they were mutilated. They were in sexual positions. They were, there was, it wasn't regular pornography, though. They were mutilated and uh, hanging from hooks. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen before and nothing I'd ever even heard of. It was a horror. And I did something that many people wonder about. I closed, I, I went through a number of them and I just closed the book and I went to bed. I went to sleep. And people ask me like, why didn't you run? What were you thinking? And the answer is, I was tired. I was tired and I was in denial. I didn't think anything would happen to me. I was 16 and that's things that happened to other people. And I just didn't wanna deal with it. I just wanted to go to sleep. I didn't wanna have to go out into the night and figure out what I was gonna do. And so that evening, um, this man, whose name was Larry, um, came in and he rolled on top of me and I said, stop. And he said, shut up. And I thought of all those pictures of those cut up girls. And I just thought, I don't want to be cut up. 
if I, if I scream, I'm going to get hurt. And when he was done, he rolled over and he went to sleep. And I got up and I snuck out of the house. And I hid under a bush and the bush was shaking because I heard him come out. And I was so afraid he was going to find me, but he didn't. And I escaped. And I knew after that, okay, I'm done. I don't want to hitchhike anymore. I have to, I have to stop. It's time to stop. And I was in Santa Monica, California. So I went down to the beach and I was sitting there on the beach trying to figure it out what I, what I was going to do. And uh, two young men approached me. They were uh, Christians. And all I wanted was to smoke a joint with somebody. I wanted to chill out and figure out what I was going to do next. And so they came up to me. I'm like, hey, you want to smoke a joint? And they're like, no, but let me tell you about Jesus. And I was like, no, no, no I'm good. I'm good. No Jesus. And, and then another one would approach me. Hey, let me tell you. About you. No, no Jesus. And that happened throughout the day. But one of them, sweet guy, bought me a, a cup of tea. He said, let me get by a, 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 a glass of iced tea. Oh, no, maybe he said, let me buy you a drink. Okay. And we went and he bought me an iced tea. And we sat and we talked for a long while. And they were just dear and sincere and not asking me for anything. Well, wanting to talk to me about Jesus. But they backed off when I said, not interested. They were just really, there was something sweet about them and safe. I felt safe because I had known one Christian in my life and that was a boy back in my neighborhood who had prayed for me. This nerdy guy who we all, he was a little older and we all knew him to be this nice guy who was a Christian and you know was real straight and just nice. Well he had prayed for me once. He had come through my parents backyard and came walking through and say, hey, how you doing? And he probably, his Bible study probably was praying for me because he had, his sister and my sister were friends. So he knew, oh, Miho's in trouble, you know, pray for her. But he stopped and talked to me that day. And while I don't remember what we talked about that day, I do remember at the end of the conversation, he said, you know, could I pray for you? And I was like, okay. And he prayed, Lord, reveal yourself to her. Keep her in the palm of your hand and let her live her life for you. And it was that part of the prayer, let her live her life for you, that I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. But no, I am not going to become a Christian. No, I am going to party. So, so that was years before. That was years your before. Your time went to. But that's what gave me a sense of these are probably safe, nerdy guys like that guy. So um, I... I was aware, like maybe, because they were saying there was a place I could stay if I needed help. So these guys were in ministry, and they were trying to scoop up the girls that came to the L.A. area and became prostitutes. They were trying to help. So I was like, okay, well, maybe if I need a place to stay, I'll go there. In the meantime, I met another guy, much more interesting, biker, law books under his, under his uh, arm, and... Also very nice. So I'm like, I think I'm going to go with the biker guy. So he took me home to his mother's house, where there's this wonderful, warm Italian woman who just greeted me, praise the Lord, children, and just really took me in. 
And I ended up living with him for too many years. And he shared the gospel with me. He shared scripture with me. But that relationship was also very fraught with disaster. So he took me to a place called the Self-Realization Fellowship of Santa Monica, California. It's still there. I went recently. And there was a pond. And around this pond was placed placards. And the placards represented different world religions. Buddhism, Taoism, Christianity, all of it. And I I was walking around this pond considering all these different religions. Now, by this time, I had been reading a little bit of scripture. I had been, I, I was lightly exposed and, I don't know, kind of, that this guy who I was living with was all about it. So I was like, yeah, okay, maybe. Um, when I came to the placard that was represented Christianity, it said, be still and know that I am God. And I thought, I don't even know what it means to be still. So I got very quiet and I heard a voice inside myself. And it said, it, the voice said, it's true. I am God. And I was rattled because this voice was very, it was very powerful. It was very like centering and strong and undeniable. And I didn't want it to be true, but I couldn't push back. There was no pushing back. It was just a wave of truth that overtook me. So was that when you surrendered? That was my moment. I didn't want to be a Christian. And I have to say, I still don't in many ways. (laughs) You know, I, it doesn't fit so much of who I am, but it was, it remains an undeniable moment. And he continues to give me undeniable moments that are. And he revealed, he revealed himself to you so that you had faith to believe. Yes. Yeah. Well, did you feel different after that happened? Did you do anything differently? And I started reading my Bible and he took me to a Catholic church where I would go faithfully. And I started to try to dig into this new life. I stopped doing drugs. Mostly. I would, I dabbled a little bit now and again, but I honestly, I think he became my new drug because he was an alcoholic and and it was um, a very abusive relationship. He, he became more and more abusive as time went on. And my world got smaller and smaller and smaller. And it, I was all about him. And I think that was, extre- it, well, I don't think, it was extremely unhealthy and extremely addictive for me. I, I was now going to become his savior somehow. I had stupid fantasies about, because he was in law school, about him like standing on a podium saying, I could never have done this without her. It was classic codependence. And I was all about it. I was, you know, now I'm 17 years old and I'm, you know, I was a kid playing house, being religious and trying to make this abusive relationship work, trying to 
do jobs that I didn't know how to do, getting fired mm. from them because I mean, I, I, me, I was trying to be a bookkeeper. How did you get out? Well, it lasted for years. I left, I went back, I left, I went back. I was, I was addicted. And, and we would pray together and try to overcome ourselves. And eventually we had made a pact that we were gonna be celibate. We were gonna live in the same house and we were gonna be celibate. And so I got pregnant. And um, it was that, that cleared my vision. I just understood I'm going to be tied to him for the rest of my life. I'm gonna have a baby and I'm gonna be tied to him. No, I no. He, this can't happen. So what did you do? I had an abortion. And that, yeah, that was the clarity I needed. I thought, I, I got to stop. This, my life is in shambles. That was, I, that was the clarity of your relationship with him. And of, about and the state that him. I yeah. was in. And, yeah. I'm a Christian. <clears throat> I'm living with a guy. I'm, I've just aborted a baby. What are you doing, Miho? So what did you do? So I left him for the third time, or fourth time, whatever it was. But this time I left. He stopped me and I, I, I found an apartment and he broke into the apartment and left notes that had baby killer written on them. I mean, it was, it was nightmarish, but I did get out. And at the same time, you started to go to some good churches and get discipled. Right? That's right. So I had switched over to a, a church in the valley where I really dug in. I was there. When the doors were open, I was there. I volunteered for anything on Wednesday night, Sunday night, Sunday morning. I was there. And I started to have a community built around me. And the other thing that happened that was so, so beautiful was one of my party buddies, my big crush from back in the day was also out in California. He had basically lost his mind from the use of meth. He got to the point where he, he would dabble and he was written off. And he, he was there in California and I looked him up and we kind of clung to one another and tried to help one another. And I took him to church and he got radically saved that day from that day forward, he didn't touch a drug, a cigarette. He's never cursed again. He's, his life was so radically changed. And we spent weeks together. We clung to each other. And, and not as lovers, not as, as dear friends, as people who knew what we are, were coming out of. Yeah, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. So you basically grew in your faith. I grew in my faith because I plugged into a good church and that, that the word of God started to change me. It, I wasn't white knuckling it anymore and trying to change my behavior. It started to flow because I was growing and I, yeah, I was being changed. How old were you then? I was with that guy for about seven years. So by the time I left him, I was around 24 and I decided I was going to be a missionary. Good Christians are missionaries. (laughs) So I thought, well, if I'm going to be a missionary, I need to know the Bible. Okay? I'm going to know the Bible. I need to go to Bible school. So I found a Bible school in Oklahoma. And I signed up, and Bobby had gone there too. 
my buddy. And the, bu the buddy that she's talking about had become a pastor, or he became a pastor. Yeah. He's still a pastor He's to this still day. A pastor. He's married. I was the best man in his wedding. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's just beautiful. So I went to this Bible school. It was a wacky experience, but it was also a wonderful experience. I'm so glad I did it because all we did was study the Word of God for two years. And while the theology might have been a little, mm. a little, I, I'm challenged by some of it now, it still helps me today to know God's word that well and to have devoted myself to prayer in that way. It was just, yeah, it, it, again, I just kept growing and changing. And the things that were so hard that we talk about today, being raped, being in an abusive relationship, having all those things, it just melted away in such a way that I feel like I'm talking about somebody else. I don't really carry the burden of those terrible choices that I made and the drug addiction and all of that. It's somebody else's life. I'm an utterly new person, a new creation. I think your story gives a lot of hope to people who might be in that place right now, parents of teenagers who are in that place. And then the one who is really struggling with some of the same challenges that you have described. Think about that parent who has a child who is a wild child. They've tried everything. They just can't seem to get through. How would you encourage those parents? What, what counsel could you give to them? Dave and I are always very quick to say, we don't know. <laughs> we are no experts. Well, you're kind of an expert, but... I, I'm no expert. Just because I did drugs doesn't mean I know anything at all about that. I don't dare try to speak to anybody about their kids. I'll tell you what I would say to parents is connect with your child. And if your child is unconventional, artistic, creative, connect with your child, even if it's unconventional. So you have to, you have to establish that relationship with them and they have to know that they're loved by you. And you have to set appropriate boundaries depending on age, right? But the key is to connect with them and give them a, give them a safe and creative outlet for, for their creativity or their, you know, whatever they're, they're wanting to do. And I think that's part of the issue for you is that, that you really were creative and wanted, you had a zest for life. She still does. Um, and, you know, if, if you get squelched or it's not recognized, and particularly I would say in a lot of Christian homes, there is sort of a cookie cutter model that parents want their kids to fit into. And if, when you start to fit your kids into a model or some kind of rubric, you know, you're basically going to create a legalist or a rebel. Mm -hmm. And, and I think it's really important that you join with them and, and connect with them and give them safe alternatives. I think that's true, but I also think that there's wonderful parents out there who've oh, done yeah. all of that and their yeah. kids are on the street shooting heroin. No question. So I'm, no I'm just question. so careful to not yeah. put a burden of you should have on anybody. One of the things that um, I, and I resonate with both of you, both of what, the things that you're saying, and I think about those parents who have done that and their child, they just can't get them back. And I'm thinking about the things that happened in your life that started rooting you in, this, in the gospel and transformed from the inside out. The Lord did it to you. Yes. Um, the word, being in the word like you were, community, getting into a church where there was a community that genuinely cared for you. I mean, the, those are kind of hallmarks of the gifts of God that he gives to us so that 
we can grow in grace. And, and, but I think about parents, the power of prayer. And, and Sharon, the person, the nerd who prayed for me, back when I was, that was him. Yeah, you got to tell us that story. I grew up down the street from her, and I had known her. You know, she was five years younger than me. So I was, you know, I was older and she was younger. And, you know, we knew each other. We knew each other. You know, I knew her as a, as a cute little kid running down the street. But he prayed for me, and you're right. I mean, the power of prayer. And, and I, that's another thing I would say, you know, along those lines, for parents, yes, absolutely pray for your kids, but realize that some of them have to go on their own journey mm-hmm. and that God has his hand that, you know, Mio has a very powerful testimony because she went through what she went through. Now, I'm not recommending that you that kids get sent out like that, right. but you have to trust God to say, okay, God, I'm doing everything I can and I'm praying for my child and have your hand on her, have your hand on him, be faithful. And that's I think that's part of the testimony we, we try to bring out at when she does clean sheets. People, we, we do a Q&A after the show, always with the whole audience. And a lot of what we try to say is God is faithful. He's like the hound of heaven who pursues us and it doesn't, doesn't let us go. And so we need to be able to trust God for our kids in that way. You know, sitting here and thinking, I just used a term, the power of prayer. It's a Christian saying right but it's there is power god didn't tell us to pray because he thought oh, they're going to be bored they gotta i gotta give them something to do he, he was giving us a key that we don't understand i know i don't understand it i know he said to do it and he did it there's something there that's truly powerful and it's truly an answer that i don't avail myself of enough it's there's it is an answer I think one of the mistakes that uh, parents make and you you kind of alluded to it that trying to fit a child into a cookie cutter Mm -hmm. so they measure the health of their child by what they see them doing and so that becomes the focus of their prayer please make my child stop using drugs Uh, you know make my child come home But the transition happens when we start praying for our children to know Jesus and all that other stuff we're not going to worry about. What we want them to do is to know Jesus. And then he's going to open their hearts and their eyes, just like he did with you. You Somehow you knew, okay, it's time for a change here. This is the right thing to do. It's the difference between behavior modification and heart change. That's right. As you look back over your life and you see those really painful places, and I think about parents who are listening to you and thinking, I don't want my kid to go through all that kind of stuff. And yet your life has been dramatically redeemed and transformed. And I I wonder, as you look back, do you say, man, I wish that had never happened? Or do you see that God is not wasting anything in your life? My life now I have a wildly creative life. I mean, I get to make things and do things and and express myself as an artist in so many different ways. It's so beautiful. And one of the things I I was so resistant about when I considered being a Christian was I thought I had to conform and act in a certain way and give up 
myself, my, my real self. And I have such a strong sense of self that I was just not willing to do that. And the reality is God has allowed me to step into my real self and use my gifts in a way that I never could have hoped. And the brokenness of my life and even like the crazy street living informs my art today and informs who I am in, in such a way that it, it has broadened everything that I do, especially my, my work as an artist. So I, I see that nothing has been wasted. While, while I regret a lot of the decisions I made, that God has not allowed any of it to be wasted. And he has been so gracious to allow me to, to blossom as the, this person who he made me. And I'm, I'm more grateful for that than anything. Because I really did, for a number of years, try to conform myself to my idea of what a Christian should be. And that was disastrous. One of the things that happens when Miho does clean sheets and she, she depicts in a very tasteful but honest way the rape, one of the things that happens is so many women have been abused or had that happen to them. And at the end of the performance, they always line up to talk to Miho. Many of them say things like, that happened to me. You know, they, they, they understand that she understands. And one of the messages that we always like to communicate to our audiences is that you're not defiled or defined by what happens to you. If you've been abused, raped, whatever has happened to you, God loves you. He doesn't, he doesn't look at you as defiled. And his love is unconditional. His love is immense. He lavishes his love on us. And, and so we need to turn to him and receive that love and not be defined by our experiences, but be defined by him, by him who loves us. And so we have a new identity in Christ by when we receive him. As we're wrapping up, I hope that those of you who are listening who have never seen the production clean sheets, if you have the opportunity, you will. I know I am looking forward to seeing it myself. I hope also that you will recognize the hope and the incredible mercy of the Lord in there in the story that you've just heard. And Mio, before we um, conclude our time together. Could you just talk to that person who's listening, who it could be the, the, the wild child, or it could be the mother of that wild child. Um, what encouragement can you give to that person? Hmm, I guess I just want to say that God is real. And if you'll ask him to show himself to you, he will. He will. He said, knock and I'll open. Seek and you'll find. He, he will answer you. So go to God with an open heart and ask him to just show you himself. There, he's real. He's real, he's real. I think that we can know for sure that he's real just by hearing your story mm -hmm. and seeing his hand on you and how he drew you into his heart. Thank you so much. Uh, Dave and Miho for sharing your lives with us today. It is such a privilege and an honor. I'm so moved. And even as you're talking about the women who line up to uh, share their stories, it's, it's just very moving to me to see how God is using those really broken places. He redeems them and he makes them beautiful. And I know that I'm just one of many 
who is grateful that you are so transparent and giving your story to the Lord to bring hope to others. I'm Sharon Betters, and you have been listening to the Help and Hope podcast produced by Marking Ministries. And we're so grateful that you have shared your time with us. And we hope that as you have been encouraged by what you have heard, that you will pass it on to others who will also benefit from the story of Miho Khan and David Wiedis. Uh, David Wiedis is the founder and executive director of Serving Leaders Ministries. And we will include the link to his website on uh, the program notes. And also you've been hearing about the production Clean Sheets and you can go to cleansheets.org where you will find more information and where you can talk to them about having them come to your organization, your event. They're open to going wherever the Lord is leading them. So thank you so much, David and Miho, for sharing your time with us today. Go to markinc.org where you're going to find many, many free resources that offer the help and the hope of the gospel. Thank you for listening.